0: This ReachMD program is featured on CERMO, a free online community exclusively for physicians. To discuss this program with your colleagues, visit SURMO.com. When you join, enter ReachMD into the promotional box to receive a $15 Amazon gift card.
1: You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Hi, this is Dr. Ann Goldberg, president of the National Lipid Association, and I'd like to welcome you to Lipid Illuminations, hosted by Dr. Larry Kaskell, presented by the National Lipid Association.
0: Hi, I'm Dr. Larry Kaskel, and I am at the Midwest Lipid Association meetings in Minneapolis, and I'm serving as a roving lipidologist. I've been talking to some of the keynote speakers after they've given their talks and to give you an on-the-ground perspective of what's going on here at the meetings. Hi, I'm here with Dr. Julia Steinberger from the University of Minnesota and she's the director of the Pediatric Lipid Clinic and just delivered a talk on lipid screening and management in children. Dr. Steinberger, I was just wondering if you could briefly summarize your brilliant talk and what we should be thinking about with our adolescents. What age should we really start thinking about looking at our patients' lipids?
1: Well, as we think of primary prevention, we obviously think about preventing adult disease early in life, which is childhood. And it really is never too early. Probably the earliest age I would uh, start thinking about assessing lipids in a child is in uh, early childhood, somewhere between three to five years of age. And the reason for making this assessment early in life is that the primary line of treatment is lifestyle changes, is dietary and uh, physical activity changes, uh, which are a lot easier to accomplish in an early child than in a late adolescent.
0: Um, let's say we, ha- we know that the child has familial hypercholesterolemia and they're homozygous. Um, obviously, it would be more concerned with that patient than a heterozygous.
1: Yeah. So homozygous familial hypercholesterolemia is an extremely rare condition. It's one in a million.
0: So you don't have a, a, a clinic filled with them? No,
1: absolutely not. I have one patient with homozygous familial hypercholesterolemia. They are at, at extremely high risk for early heart disease. And that probably is not the best example for the general practitioner to have to think of. But there are a number of children with heterozygous familial hypercholesterolemia where family history is very useful in determining who should be screened. And you have to remember that heterozygous familial familial hypercholesterolemia is not extremely rare. One in 500 people. So that's hundreds and thousands of Americans who have familial hypercholesterolemia. And in a child, more so than in an adult, if you don't think of it, if you don't screen for it, you will not find it until they develop disease.
0: A reminder, audience, a little bit about some of the autopsy studies that have been done on kids that died from, let's say, uh, some trauma or a car mm-hmm. accident. What, what's going on in their coronary arteries?
1: So autopsy studies in the last 15 years have shown in children as young as 2 years of age up to mid-30s, these autopsy studies were done in children as young as 2 up to 30s, that the extent of lesions in the coronary arteries and in the aorta were in direct proportion to the level of the risk factors, which are obesity, abnormal lipids, high blood pressure. So even as early as young childhood, you can find in the arteries of these people significant hardening of the arteries, significant layering of cholesterol in the arteries. Obviously, these are linked to the risk factors that we know of these days.
0: You are from the Mediterranean area of the world? That's correct. Do you think that in that part of the world there's less heart disease because of, um, let's say, cleaner air, cleaner lifestyle, more walking, less pollution, any thoughts on that?
1: Well, you know, there has been a lot of research on the Mediterranean diet. And the Mediterranean diet is a diet that's low in saturated fat, high in fiber. And it has been shown that Mediterranean diet is associated with less cardiovascular disease. I have to say, though, that there is a change in the situation in the Mediterranean countries. And there's more obesity, just as there is worldwide Mm -hmm. more obesity. And I think the increase in obesity tends to trump the healthier diet. So you may be able to have and this is, again, not necessarily related to lipids, but more so related to uh, the side effects to the, to the uh, risks of obesity and type 2 diabetes.
0: Julia Steinberger, thanks for talking to us.
1: You're welcome. Thank you.
0: If you've just joined us, you're listening to Lipid Luminations on ReachMDXM 157. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Caskel, and I'm coming to you live from the Midwest Lipid Association meetings that were held in Minneapolis in September, and I was able to track down some of the keynote speakers, and uh, here's what they had to say. I'm talking with Dr. Paolo Raji. He's a professor of medicine and radiology at Emory University and he just delivered a talk on uh, cardiac calcium scoring. Dr. Raji, the number of CT scanners is proliferating like crazy in the United States. I think you mentioned uh, 100 a month are being sold. So as a general practitioner, who should we be ordering these on?
2: Well, there's unfortunately an over-utilization of CT imaging at this, at this time for specifically for coronary CT angiograms. CT began uh, with... Uh, CT imaging for coronary calcium, which is atherosclerosis imaging. And it is best employed in patients with intermediate risk by framing them categories, for example, or PROCAM categories, whatever risk uh, scoring method you're using, to improve on the risk assessment, either to increase the risk or decrease the risk. In other words, recalibrate the risk.
0: Let's say you don't even want to go with any radiation and uh, you want to stratify their risk a little better, and uh, you do an IMT on them. And you see the presence of plaque. Can you stop?
2: Sure. The presence of plaque on IMT is already a very good uh, evidence of atherosclerosis. Now, some people are not happy with knowing that there is atherosclerosis in the carotids and they want to know whether there's atherosclerosis in the coronary arteries. And in truth, uh, there is a fair relationship between presence of uh, increased thickness on the IMT and presence of coronary atherosclerosis. Fair because it probably is around 60 years 65%. But the reality is that if you do see calcium in a CT image, you do know for a fact 100% uh, specificity and sensitivity that there is uh, atherosclerosis in that individual. Now, in patients without calcium, we probably miss 3% or 4% of patients with atherosclerosis. However, in my opinion, CT for calcium, which is uh, utilizing a much lower radiation dose, is still superior at least as far as risk stratification is concerned to CTA, in other words, an angiogram performed with CTA. The radiation dose is much less. We're talking about 1 millisiever to thereabouts versus 15 millisievers or higher. And uh, the added benefit of knowing that there is some non-calcified atherosclerosis on the CTA, from the point of view of risk stratification simply, is really not helpful.
0: So you you don't care if they're soft plaque?
2: Well, I think that the added benefit of knowing that is very little. If you are talking about a group of symptomatic patients where you want to find stenosis and they may have no calcium and you want to know whether there is a non-calcified stenosis, then there might be a value to it. But unfortunately, the CT scanners and the users now are promoting the use of, this, um, of the CT angiography to find the non-calcified atherosclerotic plaque. But we have no clue as to whether that adds incrementally to the presence or absence of coronary calcium.
0: Why does atherosclerosis calcify, do we know that answer?
2: We don't know why. We know that it's an active process that is really closely resembling bone formation. We know that it's under the control of cells and enzymes that resemble closely cells and enzymes that we find in normal bone. We know what promotes it. For example, enough oxidized LDL Mm -hmm. fed into a vascular smooth muscle cell is enough to promote the phenotypical transformation of the smooth muscle cell in an osteoblast-like cell. But why that happens teleologically, we have no idea.
0: And then um, a few years ago, I heard a lecture by a uh, cardiologist who believed in the calcium bomb theory. I don't know if you're familiar with it or not, that he believed that it was an infectious agent that covered itself with calcium. And that was the trigger for atherosclerosis. And unless you treat that infectious agent and use chelation, you're never going to treat the disease. Well,
2: now, before we go to the infectious agents, chelation, let's kill it right there. Chelation has helped (laughs) never anybody, has never helped anybody with a kill chelation right there. And there are even some studies on uh, peripheral vascular disease and the effect of chelation, and chelation just made it worse. So I think that at least as far as I'm concerned, chelation is dead in the water. As far as the potential of uh, calcification being the end effect, side effect, I don't know what type of effect of infection, again, unfortunately, the infectious etiology of atherosclerosis has not really panned out yet. I don't think so. So at least not for chlamydia. Not for chlamydia, exactly. And some people even called in to question the effect of viruses, mm-hmm. such, a, such as CMV, for example. But again, uh, the infectious etiology has not yet found out. I'm not ready to just uh, throw it away as a possibility. Right. Uh, but I'm not too excited about it at the moment. I do know, however, that there are a few groups that are actively investigating the effect of vaccination. Mm-hmm. Um, antibacterial as well as antiretroviral medications on calcification but I'm not aware of any positive result yet. Last
0: question 20 years from now, how do you think we'll be treating atherosclerosis? Do you think we'll be using statins or will we be using some sort of biologic agent to treat inflammation?
2: I hope that as we learn more about the pathobiology of atherosclerosis, we learn more about how it is truly created how it comes about And I hope that we will be more effective in intervening in the pathobiology of the the disease. So statins, unfortunately, are useful, but they are an intervention at the very end of a long course. And so hopefully we'll be able to intervene both at the DNA level, RNA messenger level, who knows. But I think that in 20 years from today, there will be much more advanced therapies than simple statins.
0: Dr. Paolo Raji, thanks for talking to me.
2: Thank you. Ciao. Ciao.
0: (laughs) I'd like to thank our guests from the Midwest Lipid Association meetings in Minneapolis. You've been listening to ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. And thanks for listening.
1: Thank you for listening to Lipid Illuminations, presented by the National Lipid Association. For more information, please visit www.lipid.org. ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals.